In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 20 and 25 years ago, I used to have to drive to work from Croydon all the way across to Kingsford. And it was a 45-minute trip, and it was heavy traffic going there, and heavy traffic after a tedious day coming back home. But one day in the year 2000, uh, as I was listening to Richard Glover, who was always entertaining, he mentioned that a British rock star had just died uh, from cancer. His name was Ian Dury. And he mentioned that Ian Dury had had a difficult upbringing. He'd, he'd had polio as a little boy in the 50s, which had affected him badly. Uh, and he'd had a, a pretty tumultuous life, but uh, was a popular rock star and songwriter. And he had a backing band called the Blockheads. Now, I'd never heard of Ian Dury and never heard of the Blockheads, though I'd been called one. And I wouldn't have given that piece of information a great deal of, of thought, except Richard Glover went on to play one of the songs that Ian Dury and the Blockheads played. And the song was Reasons to be Cheerful, Part 3. Which is an interesting title for a song. Now he'd written the song, Reasons to be Cheerful, after one of the blockheads had narrowly escaped being electrocuted while setting up for a concert. And uh, I thought I'd read you some of the lyrics of the song. Does anybody know Ian Dury and the Blockheads? Or Reasons to be Cheerful? Somebody does. A couple of people do. Anyway, this, these are some of the lyrics. And you can listen to the song and hear the song being performed on YouTube. And this is some of the reasons. Too short to be haughty, too nutty to be naughty, going on 40, no electric shocks. The juice of a carrot, the smile of a parrot, a little drop of claret, anything that rocks. Elvis and Scotty. Scotty was his guitarist. Elvis and Scotty. The days when I ain't spotty. Sitting on a potty. Curing smallpox. Now what are my reasons for being cheerful? Well, solving a really hard Sudoku is a reason to be cheerful, for me anyway. It might take a while, but when I do it, I, that's a reason for being cheerful. Opening a new packet of coffee, there's a reason for being cheerful. Or the provision of YouTube. Whose idea was that? What an amazing resource. 
reason for being cheerful. Now, I asked my wife yesterday what her reasons for being cheerful were. And she said, seeing our grandchildren. Isn't that nice? What are your reasons for being cheerful? Anybody like to share one of their reasons for being cheerful? Well, give it some thought. And you might like to tell people at morning tea what your reasons for being cheerful are. Now today, we start looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in a town in northern Greece called Philippi. Here we are, reading a letter written almost 2,000 years ago, reading other people's mail... And we're going to be looking at Philippians for the next, well, quite a few weeks. Now, we often think of Paul, the apostle, as a great teacher, as a theologian worth studying, as a hero of the faith, as a tireless champion of the message that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And all that is true of him. But I wonder, how often do we think of Paul as a human being like us? He was a man, we can tell, who loved company. He loved his friends and his family. And he was surrounded by men and women who assisted him in his work. They were his colleagues, his fellow workers. And we know some of their names. There's a Priscilla and her husband Aquila. There's Clement. There's Timothy. There's Junia. There's Phoebe, Silas and Barnabas. And and you will know other names. And when we read Paul's letters, we get the impression that he loved these people. He was a man of affection. I would imagine that he was a hugger, an embracer. And he wouldn't have enjoyed lockdown since it would have cut him off from people, just like we didn't enjoy lockdown for that reason. Now, we all know that in the course of his work, he founded little communities, churches, of believers all around the eastern Mediterranean, in places where cruise ships go today. And he genuinely loved these people. And he was eager to have news of them. He could only stay with them for a few weeks or months and then he had to flee in many cases because of persecution. So he was desperate to hear how these little groups of Christians were getting on and sometimes he would send one or more of his fellow workers to visit them because he couldn't go and they would bring back reports. And he wrote letters to them. 
Sometimes he wrote those letters to correct their thinking and to correct their behaviour. These are young believers. And he wrote to encourage them. And he used these letters to care for these believers. Now, we connect immediately, even in lockdown, by phone and email and SMS. And we have Zoom. Paul would have loved Zoom. And we have FaceTime. But he, by contrast, had to rely on snail mail. And worse than Australia Post, he had to trust that his messengers wouldn't get shipwrecked or attacked by pirates and thrown overboard or beaten up and robbed by bandits or didn't get sick from some sort of early COVID outbreak and die on the road. So maintaining the connection and the embrace between himself and the churches was full of risk and danger. And what joy when a letter or a report got through. Reasons to be cheerful. Now when Paul wrote to the Philippians, when he wrote this letter that we're looking at, starting to look at today, he was in prison. Locked down. Where was he? Well, we don't know. He could be in Rome. He could be in Caesarea. He could be in Ephesus. And that's where I think he was. And I think that, for various reasons, in part because when Paul was in Ephesus, there was an almighty social disturbance that involved the whole city. A citywide, angry, ugly, public protest against Paul that went on for hours and hours. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. So consequently, if he is in jail in Ephesus, he is facing trial with execution as the possible outcome. If he's found guilty of disturbing the peace, and of fermenting social unrest. And the Roman rulers in Ephesus and everywhere across the Roman Empire were mighty anxious about social unrest and were prepared to charge those who caused it and if found guilty to execute them, usually by forcing the condemned to face wild animals in the arena for the amusement of spectators. But in the midst of this awful, grim, menacing situation, there are reasons for Paul to be cheerful. And there are two that he mentions, at least, in Philippians. First of all, he's cheerful because the spread of the gospel to the household of the Roman governor is happening. He might not have expected that, but it is happening. You can see in, Roman, in Philippians 1.13 and chapter 4, verse 22, some of those members of the governor's staff have become Christian. And the second reason for being cheerful is that 
while he's in prison, the Philippian church have sent him assistance and aid through Epaphroditus, one of the members of the church there. And he risked his life to bring aid to Paul. And while he was in Ephesus, he almost died. Now, Philippians is one of Paul's sunniest letters. It's sunniest because there are genuinely mutual bonds to be celebrated that link the community of believers in Philippi a long way away and Paul in prison. Partnership, warm relationship, community and embrace now exist where there was none before. Now today I should be considering all 11 verses of the opening chapter of the letter as was read to us by Leslie but I'm going to leave close examination of some of those verses to the growth groups and I'll be constructing some questions for their meetings, as I said, over the next fortnight. Because I don't have time here to cover the verses <clears throat> that, uh, all those verses of, of, of the chapter. I, I could, of course, have extended the sermon to double its length, but that would not have been a reason to be cheerful. But first of all, if you have that first chapter open before you, please note <clears throat> that the letter is from Paul and Timothy. Now, I have no doubt that Paul is the real author of the letter. <clears throat> but he is keen to associate one of his closest fellow workers in its writing. And we hear in chapter 2 that Paul is hoping to send Timothy to the Philippians so it makes sense for Paul to associate him in the writing and this is a reminder of what I said earlier Paul is not a lone worker he's not a mere individual he's not a sole trader in this work of preaching the gospel he has, as I said, a circle of friends and colleagues, and Timothy is one of the most prominent and valued of these. And now listen to the, Paul's opening greeting to the Philippians. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now I want you to notice, first of all, the coupling of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus. Now this is this calling Jesus Lord is no accident. By calling Christ Lord, Paul is telling us that the Lord who spoke to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, that Lord is to be identified with Jesus Christ. It's the same word. So do not doubt that the full divinity of the man Jesus Christ is an early Christian confession of faith. And from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ come grace and peace. Now let me say something about grace and then something about peace. Very important words. 
Grace is a shorthand way of talking about God's bestowal of mighty benefits on his people, chiefly in forgiving us our sins and making us heirs of eternal life and making us into a new society. Grace. Now, emperors and generals and great civic leaders in the first century gave highly publicised, gracious benefits to communities they wished to favour. And those benefits were given in the expectation that the benefactors would be celebrated and lauded in public inscriptions and in widely advertised and remembered honours, public honours. So as you walked through the forum in the town of Philippi, you would see that the bathhouse or the theatre or the new footpath had been the gift of the great general Mark Antony. And you would have reasons to be cheerful. In return, Mark Antony, or whoever it was who had bestowed the benefit, expected praise, public honour, loyalty and compliance. Two-edged sword. Now Philippi was not just any old city in Greece, it was a Roman colony. And before it became a colony, Philippi was the site of a decisive military victory by Mark Antony and Octavian, who was later the Emperor Augustus, over the assassins of Julius Caesar. In fact, it was Octavian, one of those victorious generals, who later settled many of his veterans in Philippi and they turned it into a Roman town. And it was a town with many reminders of the victory of Antony and Octavian. So Philippi was a testimony to the outcome of violence on a massive scale a testimony to the brute force of arms and the crushing of enemies. But by contrast, God's grace is freely given. It's generous. It's large-hearted. It's given in the expectation that the receivers might emulate God's example and be gracious to those who can't repay you. And this brings us to peace. Well, we've already sung about peace today. It's all we want. We want the inner peace that comes from forgiveness of sins and the social peace that comes about when we are restored to right relationships with God and with others. 
This is the peace that passes all understanding, as Paul writes in Philippians 4, verse 7. Grace and peace, reasons for being cheerful. Now, I'm not going to say much about verses 3 to 11, except to say that here we see Paul rejoicing in the partnership of the Philippians while he is at this very low point in his life, staring at the very real prospect of execution. In verse 3, he thanks God in his prayers for every remembrance of the Philippians. In verse 5, he says that their fellowship with him is a partnership in the gospel which has been unbroken from the very beginning up to the present. In verse 7, his joyful and thankful thoughts about the Philippians are confirmed by the witness of his heart. And in verse 8, he longs for the Philippians with the very longing of Christ, he says. The very longing of Christ for these people is matched by Paul's own longing for them. It is a visceral love. You can feel it in the pit of your stomach. Or as the King James Version says, in your bowels. It is an affectionate love that embraces and hugs. In verse 9, he prays that the love the Philippians have for one another will abound more and more that they might be pure and blameless on the day when Christ appears. And in verse 11 he says, or he prays, that the Philippians might be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes from Christ himself to the praise of God. Now we must not think of this righteousness as mere personal goodness that begins and ends with me. No, that's not righteousness. Righteousness in the Bible is a relational term. It means doing what is required to maintain the relationships in which we find ourselves. And Paul is praying here that the members of the Philippian community might be outstanding in their care and love for one another and in their service of Christ. That is the righteousness that comes from God. So friends, this morning we have been learning about Paul's reasons for being cheerful. The gospel he preaches and which has brought the Philippian church into being is a message of grace and peace and joy in a broken, divided and violent world. Now let me conclude with this observation. I don't think we can explain adequately the spread of Christianity in the early decades, in the early centuries, unless we take into account the fact that people discovered that in Christ they could have peace from the relentless menace, aggression and competition that marked social life. In Christ, 
They knew real joy. And peace and joy are transformative. As a result, the early Christians discovered genuine love for all humankind because God in Christ had come, lived as one of them, died and rose again, and as a consequence redeemed them, forgiven them, and made them a new people. Reasons to be cheerful. Sean Frain taught New Testament at Trinity College, Dublin, and he was a notable scholar of the Jewishness of Jesus and of the region of Galilee in the first century. And 35 years ago, I bought a little book by him called The World of the New Testament. It's a terrific book. And this is what he writes on pages 12 and 13 of his introduction. He says, It is my conviction <clears throat> that a better understanding of the anxieties and hopes that shaped the lives of the first century people enormously enriches the value of the New Testament as a tract for our times. Quickly emerges that although shaped by time and circumstances, there is a common search for human wholeness within a world of change, aggression and fear. Ultimately, it is the ongoing quest for peace and justice despite the reality of evil and oppression in our daily lives. In this search, the religious understanding of life plays a central role. It must be presumed that first century people opted for Christianity as their religion because for them at least, it offered some more coherent picture of ultimate meaning and help them to make greater sense of their everyday experiences at the experiential, if not at the theoretical level. Now I find this assessment of the attractiveness of the Christian life commitment thoroughly compelling. First century men and women around the Mediterranean lived in a world that had been beaten into submission by Roman generals. Philippi owed its very existence to violence and the pitiless extermination of enemies. Rome imposed peace on the world and maintained that peace against resistors and freedom fighters and minorities yearning for justice and freedom. And Jesus died as a victim of the Roman peace. He was one of thousands who died that way in Judea. The Romans used the cross to terrorise the locals. Too bad if Paul in prison in Ephesus were to lose his life as a disturber of the Roman peace, collateral damage. But the message about Christ created a new social reality. The message created new communities with a profound sense of social obligation. And in his dealings with his fellow workers and the churches, 
Paul modelled what that new social reality looked like. Remember the affectionate Paul. The Paul who longed to embrace his friends and fellow believers in churches far away. Followers of Christ met in villages, towns and cities all over the empire and beyond. As a society, they modelled a way of life that was free of the violence endemic in politics, between the races, between slave and free, and between men and women. Christ and Paul after him celebrated the replacement of a world order which perpetuated violence and fear as the price of peace with one that created peace between people under the lordship of Christ in the kingdom of God. Reasons to be cheerful. We here in Cherrybrook are meeting in unbroken continuity with those first churches, like the church in Philippi. You and I wouldn't bother attending if we didn't find here a place of welcome and acceptance, of respite, peace and joy. If there weren't reasons to be cheerful here, we would just stop coming. This church, this unpretentious church, is a force under God for changing the world and making a difference. It is constituted by men and women, young and old, of peace and joy. And these qualities, in time, were instrumental in converting the Roman Empire. Peace and joy brought about a more just world, but there's always much to be done. Churches like ours in Cherrybrook can make a difference in our broken and divided world and be places where a new way of being a society can take root, where we can be human together. Peace and joy. Rare in our society, but present among us as transforming powers.